Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that we are not left to wander through life aimlessly. I especially thank you that you have given us the truth in your word about how to prepare for eternity. And I, I pray again tonight that you would give us um, a spirit of discernment, that we would understand the difference between that conviction of the Holy Spirit and the accusation of the evil one. And so, Lord, do your work in us tonight, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, you know what? People who study the, the subject of dreams tell us that many human beings experience a recurring theme in their dreams that turns those dreams into nightmares, and that is the fear of not being adequately prepared for something important. This shows up in those horrific nightmares where you're back in school and you show up for class one day only to find out that it's the day of the final exam and you had no idea. Have you ever had that dream? Anybody? Well, I have many, many times. You feel the icy fingers of fear tightening around your throat as you realize that not only did you not ever once study for the exam, but you never even opened the textbook, and you didn't show up for any of the classes all semester. To top it off, you look down and you realize that you also failed to put any clothes on that morning, and so that's a really, really bad dream, and uh, I've had that many times. <laughs> Well, as I said, we're, we are five weeks into this series on the parables of Jesus, and tonight's parable has to do with that very thing, the importance of being ready, the importance of being prepared for something that's going to come, and it's going to come unexpectedly. And my hope is that all of us will let Jesus help us avoid our worst possible nightmare. Here's the parable as he first told it. It's found in Matthew 25, if you want to go there in your Bibles or on your devices. It's often referred to as the parable of the ten bridesmaids. So listen, Jesus said this, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil, no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. And then Jesus closed the story with this, verse 13. Watch, therefore... For you know neither the day nor the hour. Now in those days, in that part of the world, the whole relationship thing, the whole marriage thing, worked a little bit differently than it does in our day and in our culture. Back then, marriages were typically arranged. How many of you could get excited about that? Well, that's what happened. Usually the dads did it. 
The bride and groom had very little say in it, and it would kind of happen like this. A, a dad would go visit another dad, and they would have a conversation, and, and the one would say, well, you know what, I think it's in everyone's best interest if my son married your daughter. And many times a, a contract, a written contract, would be signed right then and there, and that would pretty much seal the deal, seal the fate for the, the son and the daughter. Then there would be a season called the betrothal period, and the couple were, would be said to be betrothed. And this would begin with a ceremony in which the bride and the groom would actually exchange vows in the presence of family and friends, making a solemn pledge to be married, not right then, but at the end of the betrothal period. And that would be followed by an extended time in which the groom would go back home and he would get established in his business or in his trade, and he would also build a home for he and his bride to eventually live in, usually built onto the back of the father's house. Well, that betrothal period could last for many months, many months, even up to a year. And although the couple did not have sexual relations during that period, and were not living together, they were still bound together by contract. And so their custom of betrothal wouldn't you agree, was much stronger than our custom of engagement in our day. It actually took a certificate of divorce to break off a betrothal. That's why in the story of Jesus, it says that Joseph, who was betrothed to Mary, had in mind to divorce her privately after she was found to be pregnant. Betrothal was a binding agreement. Well, at some point in time, when, when everything was ready and the house was built, the groom would head out on his journey to go get his bride. The exact day and time of that journey was unknown to everybody except the groom. It was meant to be a surprise. And so when he was ready and when he had decided, he would set out on this journey, and for dramatic effect, he would have a, a, an entourage with him, and they would all be carrying lamps or tor torches. Of course, that would not only light the path, but it would also attract attention. And um, typically, he would set out at night after the sun went down. And so you can imagine this, this torchlight procession going down the path, and each town and each neighborhood they went through, it would grow. People who knew them would join in, and so there would be this procession that would be growing and growing and growing as they passed through each neighborhood on the way to the bride's home. And when the groom finally arrived, it would be late at night, and, and that would be quite a moment, you can imagine. And he would greet his excited young bride, and of course she'd been looking for signs of his coming for months. He would gather up her things and take her back to their new home, where a, a huge celebration would begin. It's called the wedding feast. Daylight would bring more and more and more people to the feast, and the dancing and the eating and the drinking and the celebrating would go on and on, often for several days. And finally, when the feast had run its course, the best man would, would solemnly take the hand of the bride, place it in the hand of the groom, and then they would be left alone to consummate their marriage. Now, just about everybody listening to Jesus tell his story of the ten bridesmaids would have been familiar with this Jewish marriage ritual. But the, this wedding story that I just read that, that Jesus told had an ending that probably would have 
bothered some people. After all, we want our weddings to have happy endings, right? And certainly for the bride and the groom, it was happy. But what's this about these five bridesmaids who ended up coming late to the party and being denied entrance? The door was shut. What's that all about? What's the point that Jesus is trying to get across here in telling this story? Well, the parable is not interpreted by Jesus. But I do believe that, that the context around it and the rest of the book of Matthew make the meaning very, very clear. I believe it's a message that's even more applicable to us sitting in this room tonight than it was to the people who were actually listening to Jesus' story in that day. Let's, let's try to interpret this together. First of all, there's no doubt in my mind that in this story that Jesus told, the groom, sometimes called the bridegroom in that culture, we, we would typically call him the groom, right? The groom represents Jesus. No doubt about it. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, several ways. Did you know that on one occasion, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, referred to Jesus as the groom, as the bridegroom? One day, some people were wondering if John was bothered by the fact that that the crowds were leaving him and going over to Jesus and listening to Jesus. And John replied this way in John 3.28, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John the Baptist was saying, look, I'm just happy to be the best man. The groom is here now. People should be flocking to the groom. Jesus is the groom. And the bride belongs to Jesus, not to me. That's what John was saying. Jesus is the bridegroom in this story. On another occasion, some people were questioning why Jesus' disciples didn't make a habit of fasting like a number of people did. And here's how Jesus responded in Mark 2.19. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? He's here. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Who is he referring to? It's obvious. He's referring to himself. Jesus is the bridegroom in this parable. So maybe you're asking, well now, wait a second, in in what sense would Jesus be considered a groom? I mean, he was single, right? When he was here on the earth, he he was a single man, he was not married. This has to be then a spiritual reality, right? And it is. Yeah, we need to understand this. The Father in heaven has decreed This, that for everyone's joy, his son Jesus will be married, will have a bride for himself, and he intends to spend forever with his beloved bride. But the bride is not a person, the bride is a people. Jesus' beloved is not an individual woman, but a community of chosen, loved, cherished, purified men and women who love Jesus and are devoted to him. This concept of the Father in heaven preparing a bride for his son is one of those golden threads 
that runs all the way through the scriptures from beginning to end. If you recall, Genesis, the first book of the Bible, opens with a marriage of Adam and Eve. The Bible closes in Revelation with a marriage of Jesus and his eternal bride. And every wedding that has taken place on earth since that first wedding was meant to picture and create anticipation for that second wedding that is to come. So Jesus is the groom in this story. He came to earth the first time to seek a bride, and he opened the invitation to all who would trust in him to be part of his bride. Think about it. He paid a dowry, didn't he? It was a blood dowry to have his bride. And then, just like the bridegroom in the story, number two, Jesus promised to return for his beloved bride. So Jesus is the groom. He promised to come back and get his bride one day. Maybe that'll help this familiar passage make more sense to you when he said, In my Father's house are many mansions, or the the word is dwellings or rooms, If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's the language of betrothal. That's the groom pledging to return one day for his bride after going back to his father's house to prepare a place for her. We are in the period right now of being engaged, being betrothed to the heavenly bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And when everything is ready, when everything is in place, Jesus will come again for his bride and take her home to be with him forever. He will. But now note this. In the parable that he told, there were ten young ladies, ten virgins, it says, ten young ladies who were part of the wedding party, and we would call them the... Bridesmaids, right? Well, who were they? Well, they would likely have been living near the bride and along with her, anxiously awaiting the day when her groom would come for her. And so, of course, they would be getting together and making plans and getting all dreamy about what it was going to be like, laughing and giggling and Trying on dresses, of course, taking selfies, posting them on Instagram. You know what, you know that's what they were doing. But over time, as the groom did not appear day after day, week after week, month after month, their enthusiasm and their excited anticipation began to wane a little bit as it became obvious that the groom's time frame was different than theirs. Days turned into weeks, weeks turned into months, no groom. And so what had once been excitement turned into kind of a perplexity, and that turned into apathy. All because, number three, the coming of the groom seemed to be delayed. He even said that in the the parable, verse 5, as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. They zonked out. You know, I think that could easily be a description of the 21st century Christian church. Don't you think? Nodding off, falling asleep. I was thinking about that today. You know, it is so easy in suburbia 
to fall asleep spiritually. It really is. Even though Jesus promised to come back for us, it seems like he's never going to get here. Did he forget? Is he, is he really coming? I find it interesting that in this parable, all ten of the bridesmaids dozed off into never-never land. All of them. Even the five wise ones. It says there was five wise ones and five foolish. All ten of them dozed off. I think that's pretty significant. It tells me that even the most discerning, mature, prepared believers sometimes lose sight of his coming and they let their zeal for seeing Jesus cool off. Happens, doesn't it? Then every so often, something will come along that will remind us and kind of renew our sense of anticipation. A movie about the end times, a book that comes out, an event, something going on over in Israel, something going on up in the skies. A Mayan calendar or something like that. You know what? Even when it, 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 it's bogus, I don't mind it. I don't mind it because it serves to renew my anticipation for seeing Him. I want to always be looking for our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible tells us that some people are going to grow more and more cynical about this, especially as... You know, another supposed sign of his coming turns out to be a non-event. Those people are going to conclude that this whole, you know, Jesus coming back thing is nothing but a fluke. The Bible predicted that. Second Peter 3, verse 3 and 4. Peter wrote this, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come. You know what a scoffer is, right? Someone's like, ah, no way. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Ha, he's not coming back. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Let me tell you something. Our way of reckoning time is not the same as God's way of reckoning time. Have you discovered that yet? in your life? Man, I have. Just because it's been 2,000 years in earth time since Jesus made his promise to come back, don't make the mistake of thinking that, that he got held up somewhere along the way or that he didn't really mean it or that he's not coming. Don't be lulled to sleep by what seems to be like a delay. Because as surely as the midnight cry rang out in this parable, number four, the groom will surely come. Jesus is going to come back. He said he would. Verse six, at midnight, remember there was this torchlight procession at night. At midnight there was a cry, here he is, the bridegroom's here. Come out to meet him. Jesus said he would come back. Everything I know about the character of Jesus tells me he's going to make good on that promise. Didn't he make good on his promise to come the first time? And for every single prediction about that first coming, there are eight predictions about his second coming. In fact, there are 1,845 references in the Old Testament 
to the second coming of Jesus, and there are 318 of them in the New Testament. One out of every 30 verses in this book, in the Bible, alludes to the fact that Jesus is going to come back. So either this book is full of lies, bold-faced lies, or one day, yet to come in the future, at a moment when millions of people will be going about their business as usual, there's going to be a trumpet blast and a spine-tingling shout and a thundering announcement, He's here! He's here! The long-awaited moment has arrived. The groom is here. No more delay, no more waiting, and no more time to get prepared. He is here. Some people ask, well, how is this going to happen? How, how, how will he come? Will everybody see him? Will, will people recognize him? The Bible doesn't tell us everything about it, but it does tell us some things. First, the, it does say that he's coming personally. Personally. Like he's not going to send some cabinet member, you know. Hey, uh, go get my bride. Listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that's important stuff, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now here, sleep is talking about those who've died in the Lord. Verse 16, for the Lord, what does it say? Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. The Lord himself, so just as in the parable, the groom is going to show up himself. The best man is not going to pick us up in a limo. You know, he's not going to send some representative to come and get us. Jesus himself will come to take his bride home with him says two groups of people are going to be taken. It says the dead in Christ and we who are still alive and are left. Now, I hope to be in that second group, don't you? I hope we're in the terminal generation, the generation of believers who will be alive when the Lord returns. I don't have proof that that's going to be the case, but that's my desire. Together, the living and the dead who trusted in the gospel, who became devoted to Jesus, will be part of the bride of Christ. I wonder, how will you feel on that day when you look your beloved in the face for the first time? That's going to be quite a moment, isn't it? When you and I see Jesus, the one who committed himself to us, the one who pledged himself to us, the one who devoted himself to us, who paid the dowry to have us with his own blood. That's a marriage that's going to last forever. Well, it'll be a transforming moment to be sure. But Jesus will come personally second. The scriptures are clear. He's, he's going to come physically. It's not going to be a spiritual coming where you wonder, did it happen? <laughs> did, I, did, he, did I see it? Acts 1, 11, when Jesus was ascending back up into heaven, an angel appeared to his disciples and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? So they were standing there like gawking. 
This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will also come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He's going to come back in the same way. So you see him go up in the clouds, he's going to come back in the clouds. You see him go up in a body, he's going to come back in a body. We will be able to see him. The bridegroom will not be invisible when he returns. He won't come in spirit. He will appear in a glorified, resurrected body, complete, I believe, with nail scars in his hands and in his feet and in his side. We will know for sure who he is. We won't be going, is that him? (laughs) Third, as the parable tells us and as the Jewish wedding custom shows us, Jesus will come suddenly and unexpectedly. Remember that? Bride didn't know exactly when he was coming. She was supposed to be ready at all times, as were the bridesmaids. This is all over the Bible. 1 Thessalonians 5, very clear. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Thief doesn't call ahead and say, hey, I'm going to be there about 2.30. No, it's, it's unexpected. While people are saying there is peace and security... Sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come on a pregnant woman and they will not escape, speaking of those who are not prepared. The sudden and unexpected return of the heavenly groom is going to catch many people off guard. They'll be thinking about other things. They'll be going through their typical daily routines, maybe making a meal or maybe in a meeting at work in the boardroom, maybe watching television, maybe over at Easton shopping or at the soccer field. Just like that, suddenly it's going to happen. Another verse says it's going to happen in the twinkling of an eye. So, a blink. (laughs) Like that. The Bible says two men will be at work. Blink. One will be taken. The other will be left behind. It says two women will be doing some household chores. Blink. One vanishes into thin air. The other is left standing there alone, bewildered with a pile of clothes on the floor next to her. Instantaneously, millions of Jesus-loving, gospel-believing people will disappear from the planet, not to mention the bizarre scene at the cemeteries all over the globe. Jesus is going to come personally, physically, Suddenly, unexpectedly, and forth, it's clear that the groom will come to whisk his bride away to a feast. A magnificent wedding feast. In our parable, verse 10, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. So the groom comes for his bride and he takes her back to his father's house where the celebration feast of marriage gets underway. And this is going to be a party To end all parties, a magnificent wedding banquet in the skies. And really, we're only left to imagine what it's going to be like. Think about the best party you've ever been to here in this life. Think of the the best party you've ever been to. Think of the excitement when you got the invitation to come. It's like, well, they invited me. Think about getting all dressed up and ready ready to go, the anticipation. Think about the thrill of walking in and seeing huge spreads of choice delicacies that you knew you were going to be able to partake of. Think of the fun and festivities, the people laughing and joking, the food, the drink, the fun, the smell. I'm telling you, as good as that party was, it was 
it was at least a little bit tainted. And it will not hold a candle to the magnificent, sumptuous wedding feast that Jesus is arranging for he and his bride one day in the skies. I mean, it is going to be glorious, glorious. It'll make the best earthly celebration you've ever been to look tattered, cheap, and superficial. You don't want to miss that party. You don't want to miss it. And you know what? According to the parable, people who are wise won't miss it. They won't because, number five, wise people get prepared for his return. It's one of the key points in the story, isn't it? Get ready. It says those who were ready, those who were prepared, those who had made sufficient preparations ahead of time, went in with him to the wedding banquet. Now, of the, of the bridesmaids, how many did that include? Five of them, right? So there were ten. Five of them were, were wise, and they were ready. They had made preparations. Yes, they dozed off. They nodded off and fallen asleep like some of you are doing tonight. I saw you yawn, yes. Sorry about that. But they were awakened by the noisy arrival of the bridegroom, and they had already filled their lamps with oil so as not to miss the opportunity to join the procession and get in on the feast. They were called wise because even though they had dozed off, they were prepared. They were ready. So let me ask you a very important question tonight. Are you a wise person in the sense of what is spoken of here? Given the clear promise by the groom that he's going to come back for his bride, are you prepared for that? You know, I think about all the things that pastors do, and it's a multifaceted job description, but this one is paramount, helping people get prepared for that day. It's part of my job. And that's why I wanted to bring this story to you tonight because it, it tells us that preparation is key to being invited into the party. It's huge. Verse 44 of this same chapter, says, Jesus kind of capped it all off by saying, so you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. You ever talk to someone who said, you know, all that religion stuff, I mean, I'll get into that when I'm later on, like when I'm almost dead, you know, when I'm in my 80s or whatnot, then I'll, I'll give God some consideration. But right now, in my 20s and 30s and 40s, I want to live my own life the way I want to live it, but, but, but then I'll, you know, I'll give that some attention later. That is so foolish. For so many reasons. Jesus could come anytime. Anytime. I feel like I would be doing an injustice to the story if I didn't take a moment to drive home an important challenge here. I, I want to urge you to not make the same mistake that the five foolish bridesmaids made. You see, number six, foolish people wait until it's too late and they're going to miss out. They're going to miss out. In the parable, it says, those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. Of course, they're having a great time. And the door was shut. 
Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. So you get this picture of them kind of pounding on the door, right? The door's shut. Hey, we're out here. Sorry we're late. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Now, that language sounds familiar to me. Does it sound familiar to you? It sounds like that other passage in Matthew 7 where on Judgment Day, Jesus looks some religious people in the eye on that day and says, depart from me. I never knew you. We weren't in, we weren't in covenant relationship with each other. It's not like he doesn't know, know them or know their names. It's that I don't know you in the sense of being in covenant with you. It's unnerving to think about, but the sobering truth of this parable is very clear. There's going to be people who will discover too late that the door to the wedding feast, it's, it's shut, it's closed. There's no further entrance. The bridegroom came, but like those five foolish bridesmaids, they weren't ready. They, they do show up, but it's too late. Too late to get in. I mean, what, what regret could match that? What sense of remorse could match that? Standing there at the door, pounding on the door, mentally in your mind, reviewing all of the opportunities that you had to go get oil for your lamp, but it just wasn't a priority. Just didn't take the time to do it. Can you imagine what that would be like? What, what was I thinking? Why didn't I go out and get some oil? What other things were so important to me that I didn't take the time to get prepared for the arrival of the groom? That would be your worst nightmare come true, wouldn't it? Just imagine the sheer horror when the magnitude of not being prepared fully dawns on them. Oh, no, 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 no. This has got to be a cruel joke, right? This is a bad dream. Why did I flitter away all those chances to surrender my life to Jesus after hearing the good news? What was I thinking? Why in the world did I squander all of those opportunities? What a fool I was. And now the door is closed and, and, and access is over. The season of opportunity is done. Well, surely, I mean, surely the bridegroom will see that I'm here now. I mean, I'm out here pounding on those. Surely he'll let us in now. I mean, we were a little late. We weren't prepared, but no. It says the door is shut, and he turns away. What could compare with the horror of that? I still remember as a young kid sitting in church one day, and a special music group from a neighboring Bible college, I think, was there, and they they sang a song, and it's called One Day Too Late. I can still remember the words to this song, you know, 45 years later. One day too late, one day too late. Jesus came. You've been left behind to wait. Yesterday you couldn't find time for Jesus on your mind. You finally came to call his name, but one day too late. I was just a little fella, but I remember thinking, I'm not sure exactly what all that means, but I know this, I don't want to show up one day too late <laughs> and miss out. I want to finish this sermon by making two very important applications from this parable, okay? So first, number one, please, 
please, if you're within the sound of my voice, please be among those wise people who have prepared themselves for Jesus' coming and are keeping watch. Please, I'm here today to challenge you, to urge you. Many of you I know, and I know you're saying, I, I'm, I am, I'm in. I'm. But if you have doubts, get ready. Get ready for the coming of the Lord. Jesus could come back at any time. There are no biblical signs that I'm aware of that still have to be fulfilled for Christ to come back. Don't be like others who are going to be caught off guard miss the party and end up being judged for their sins because they failed to see the urgency of this and they were not prepared. You know, there is a prayer I prayed several times in my spiritual journey, and it went like this. Jesus, if never before, now. I prayed that a number of times, I remember. If, Jesus, if I've never been truly converted, if I've never been truly redeemed by you, if I've never been truly forgiven and born again, if I've never truly seen my sin and repented of it and turned to you, Jesus, to trust in your sacrifice for me, then I'm doing it now by faith. If never before, now. Save me because of your blood sacrifice for my sins. Some of you should, from your heart, pray that prayer tonight. If never before, now. You see, you can't get much traction in walking with God. You can't get much traction with going deeper in the gospel or growing spiritually or serving in a ministry. You know, it, blessing other people spiritually. You can't get much traction in discipling other people or having an impact until you nail this down. Because the reason is, only truly converted, born again, redeemed people have the Holy Spirit. Having the Holy Spirit may be what the oil in the lamps was meant to represent. Oftentimes in Scripture, oil is used as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And it was the five foolish bridesmaids who didn't have any oil in their lamps that caused them to be unprepared. Without having the Spirit of God dwelling in you, you have no light to shine for anybody. You're not really alive to God. You're still dead to God. The Spirit only comes and indwells you when you truly repent of your sin and believe the good news of Jesus. And so have you ever done that? Have you ever done that? Are you sure? Do you have the Spirit in you? Is His presence in your life evident to you and evident to others who know you? It's not something you want to be hazy on. It's not something you want to be unclear on. Some people I know are doubting, 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 always doubting. They're thinking, you know, did I really do it? Did I really do it when I was ba back when I was seven? I mean, did I really mean it when I was 10 and I prayed that prayer? I wonder when I was 14 and I was at youth camp, summer camp, did I really mean it? Or when I was 21 or, or 37, I would think there would be more evidence in my life if I really did. And so I don't think there's anything wrong with praying, dear Jesus, the truth is, I'm just not sure. 
sitting here tonight, I'm just not sure. So if never before, then now, right now, I'm giving you my life by faith. I'm believing the good news that you came and died for my sins and that you rose from my justification and that you ascended back into heaven so you could send me the Holy Spirit to live within me and be a fire within me if never before, now, today. You deserve my life. You died for me. You offer me your righteousness. I want my doubts to end today, tonight. If never before, then now. I'm driving a stake here and now. I'm not going to doubt this anymore. I'm going to be able to point back to this day as my spiritual birthday so that I know that I'm prepared. I know that I'm ready. And if that's you tonight, I, I truly hope that you will. And in a moment, I hope that you'll come forward and take communion as a confident believer in Jesus Christ, maybe for the first time. And then the Bible says, if you, if you truly have faith, confess that to someone. So I'm going to be standing down here somewhere and, and take communion and then come over and say, Steve, tonight, if never before, tonight is when I have made sure of my preparation, my readiness by surrendering my life to Jesus in faith. And listen, when Jesus said to watch for his coming, a lot, a lot of watch words, you know, watch, but it doesn't mean to go, not here yet. No, it doesn't mean to gawk up into the sky. It means to be watch, live your life in a watchful sort of way. Live your life in a, in a way that reflects the fact that you believe that Jesus is coming back. That he's going to make good on his promise that the heavenly bridegroom is going to come and take his bride back to dwell with him forever. He meant for us to live our lives as if he was coming soon. He meant for you to do what you've seen other Christian people do. Use their gifts in the power of the Spirit that lives within them to bless other people in the name of Christ. By the way, that's what next week's parable is about. The parable of the talents. And when he comes back, you'll be so glad that you did. You'll be really, really glad that, that you used what he gave you for his glory and to bless others. That's the first application for you. Please, please be among the wise people who prepare for his coming. Second, help others get ready before it's too late. Help other people get ready. Peter wrote this in 2 Peter 3, Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. <laughs> he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to what? To perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Suddenly and unexpectedly. So really, I mean really, what could be more important than helping the people you love, the people you care about, get ready for the coming of the Lord?